Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're into extra time. Hello, this is Extra Time. I'm Barry Guy, and along with RNZ columnist Hamish Bidwell, welcome to our weekly sports podcast. Also joining us this week is uh, former Black Cap, Peter McGlashan, who played 13 years of first-class cricket, and another representative of, of cricket, uh, sports editor Stephen Hewson. Well, chaps, uh, that T20, the final game at Eden Park, was a little bit reminiscent of the World Cup final in a way, really, going to that uh, Super Rover and everything. Hamish? Yeah, it was good just to give them a chance to play against a good team, get some reps under pressure. Um, meant nothing, but um, it's a good chance to, to blood people and, and try combinations for the you know to bowl the death over or, or to come out and bat for it. So, in that, in that regard, it was probably worthwhile. What, what interests me about the series, um, Peter, bringing you in is is the state of the New Zealand squad. Do you think it's the finished article minus Kane Williamson when he comes back? Is, is that is that as good as we've got? Yeah, possibly. I think the only other name who has had international experience who might get slotted in again is Tom Bruce. Um, he had a chance in the, the winter tour and, and has been in and out and was one of the kind of the better performers in the domestic competition last year. So he's probably the only player with international experience that you'd expect to, to get another look. Um, but they do have a lot of games between now and the World Cup and it's pretty familiar conditions with the tournament being in Australia. Are you sold on Gupta and Munro up top? Is there any place for, for maybe Seifert to open or even Glenn Phillips, who's done such a good job in, in Caribbean Premier League? Yeah, I, mean, I think they're, they're, um, they're all names that have had a chance and they're, and they're all uh, good options. And, and any mix of those on their day could be a match winger. And when it comes down to it, T20 cricket is just about having one or two players who play remarkable winnings and take the game away from the opposition, unlike a test match where you kind of need four or five players over the course of the five days to step up. So I, I still lean with Guptill, but just because of his experience and, um, and uh, you know, he, under pressure situations, although the, the 50-over World Cup didn't go his way, I still think um, there's some fight in the old dog. Munro's a little bit hit and miss, and, and I think... You can go with that as long as you've got the stability of Williamson and Taylor later on down the order. I think what we found out is without Williamson at three and Munro and DeGronholm being a little bit hit and miss, we're a little bit more vulnerable than normal. What do you make of DeGronholm at four and not really being a bowling option? Uh, he's destructive enough that he can probably get away with that. Uh, he can take a game away from a side by getting a, a 60 off a 20 or, or something similar. Um, the challenge comes when the chips are down and the top three haven't performed and you're actually asking him to potentially play a different role to what he's used to. But with T20 being such a short game, those times are very rare. You effectively roll the dice and say, well, it wasn't our day and let's move on to the next one. So I think he's destructive enough to probably carry that spot at the moment. Are they a World Cup winning team, do you reckon? I think they've got the potential, but I think as we saw in the death overs, both in the 50-over tournament and in the the super over, we don't have a death bowler. And for me, we don't have a natural death batter either. And so with the T20 tournament effectively being those two parts played 
over and over and over again, I think we might be found out. In the 50-over cricket, we could get by with large partnerships through the middle order and guys kind of scrapping and fighting back to get the New Zealand back in the game. But T20 tournaments, essentially, you just don't have enough time for that sort of um, approach to the, to the game. Stephen, it looks like in ideal circumstances, the, the candidate for both those things that uh, Peter's talking about, to bowl the death over and, and bowl the sort of Yorker length and to be able to club it out of the park, might be Jimmy Neesham, but I don't mm. think he's probably suited for either. Yeah, I, I suppose um, you're right. I may be just backing the truck up a little bit. I mean, it was fascinating that it went down to a super over again, wasn't it? Just the whole, you know, given the World Cup and now this series here. Uh, what does cross my mind as to whether there's any psychological scarring now that you've had two super overs. I mean, obviously you're talking different squads, and, and but, but there is a, a lot of those players involved. Um, I don't know, maybe Peter's got some thoughts there as to just uh, what the, the impact of, of having two matches finish like that. Yeah, I mean, if you were a part of the marketing team at New Zealand Cricket, you couldn't have asked for a better situation because the, the, five, the five T20s were kind of dawdling along there and it was hard to get into them. But um, it was a great way to, to bring it to a climax. I think from a scarring point of view, it probably only scars those that are involved. So you only get three batters who get to pad up and you only get one bowler who gets to bowl. So um, any scarring is probably limited um, and it is such a rare event. Um, but at the same time, if you keep going back to the well, if you keep asking Tim Southey to bowl the next super over or you ask Guptill and Munro or Guptill and Seifert to bat in the next super over, if they fail, again, it's a little bit like a penalty shootout in football. If if all you can remember is, is missing the target, um, those memories come back pretty quick as you walk to the spot. Mm. No, I mean, Hamish got mentioning there, I, I mean... <laughs> I mean, you can sort of, uh, I suppose, debate it till the cows come home about who, who should have gone out there. The cipher. I, I mean, I do like the idea of Nisham and Guptill being the, uh, uh, the the hitters in that, that you final. Need left over. right, I yeah, think that's left right, well. yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want Nisham bowling the bowling the death overs. Um, I think it just he's a bit. When it comes to his bowling, he's still a little bit too all over the shop. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I like the left hand right hand combination. I know there was the the the, the approach they were thinking because it was Jordan that was bowling and that it was Yorkers. I suppose the idea is when you're in that death over is you got to try and make him think. You know, I don't know whether it's coming down the wicket, whatever. You got to change. You got to change it up, don't you, to to get round that. But I I understand the thinking around using Cypher, but I. Yeah, on my preference, I suppose, would have been going for that that same combo from the World Cup. Jordan's world-class, and he'll execute his skill more often than not, and so as a batsman, you've got a tricky assignment there. And that, as Peter's alluded to, New Zealand don't have someone who's world-class in that that death, Mm. that super-over situation as the bowler, so that's tricky. You mentioned, Peter, too, the well, and going back to it, um, where are we at with Ish Sodi? How's, How's he going? Yeah, it's a difficult one because, um, you know, as many people have mentioned, only 18 months ago he was ranked number one T20 bowler in the world. So it's it's hard to know where he has potentially lost his confidence. The execution hasn't really come. And uh, talking about scarring, maybe the scarring's not coming from T20 cricket. Maybe the scarring's uh, from the coming and going of the other um, formats and the fact that let's talk about test bowler, not a test bowler at the World Cup, not really used. Um, you know, maybe the issue with Ish is, is less about his performances in T20s and more about his kind of collective confidence in his game. And you do get the feeling that it hasn't been coming out as well as it has in the past. But and the other thing to remember is that Mitchell Santner was so exceptional that the English bowl, uh, batters essentially had to try and have a crack at Ish because they couldn't get to Santner. So I think it's potentially a little bit of both, probably more 
a lack of confidence, maybe 70%, and then a 30% the fact that Sentinel was so exceptional. So there's two things there. Do you want to go the whole hog and say you think Sodi's been harshly treated at test and 50 over level? And second of all, it's remarkable what Santner's done, isn't it? He's, he's assumed that Vittori role where teams basically just sit on him. They go, well, we'll just accumulate here because this guy's so good and we'll just have to take what we can get and, and, and attack the next guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure we'll move on to the test squads, but I, I've kind of been digging a little bit on the stats on that. And yeah, for me, I think selectors get themselves in trouble when they start to try and justify selections because as soon as they give a reason why, uh, if if that really doesn't stack up and the evidence doesn't support it, then they dig themselves a bit of a hole um, for extra scrutiny. So, yeah, I am a little bit... Um, Disappointed, I guess, in the chopping and changing with the spinners over the years and the fact that we haven't actually kind of committed to one and, and ridden the ups and downs of giving that guy the, a chance, be it Sodi, be it Patel, be it Somerville uh, in the other forms of the game. And Isha's a big confidence player. He's got a lot of confidence from going overseas and playing in the big bash and essentially being helicoptered in and said, we've got faith in you being our guy. And I just don't know that he necessarily plays the same role within the New Zealand setup. Well, we started with the T20. We've got plenty to come this summer with the World Cup uh, next year, of course. But after making his mark in the shorter version of the game, especially at this year's World Cup, the Auckland fast bowler Lockie Ferguson has made a test squad for the first time. Ferguson is one of five pace bowlers named in a 15-man squad for the two tests against England and then the three in Australia. Trent Bolt, Matt Henry, Tim Southey and Neil Wagner are the others named. They all have plenty of experience at this level, so the question is, will Ferguson actually get to play much in the tests? That's one of the questions I put to selector Gavin Larson. I think his all-round game has grown tremendously over the last year or so. You know, We saw what he offered at the, at the Cricket World Cup recently with the white ball, um, where I thought his accuracy had um, improved out of sight, You know, uh, coupled with his express pace. Um, and we, we'd like to see that transitioning across now to the you know, to the to the test arena. He's certainly ready. Um, you know, his first-class numbers are um, extremely good. Um, he's proved his resilience, and he's ready to go. Is he going to play? Well, that, that'll be decided uh, the day before the test starts at, at Bay Oval. Um, as I say, we've got, you know, five quality bowlers in that, uh, in that unit, and um, Gary and, and Kane and co will assess the conditions up there. And, and importantly, you know, also keep an eye on the big picture. We've got five back-to-back tests, and um, the reason for picking those five quicks is so that we've, you know, got that ability to, um, you know, keep keep the fast bowlers um, fit and fresh across those uh, across those test matches. And is that why also there's just two spinners in Todd Astle and Mitchell Santner? Uh, yeah, we, we think two spinners is, is the right number in a in a squad of fifteen. Uh, our spinner doesn't traditionally bowl a lot in um, test matches or early season test matches in New Zealand, um, and the numbers very much back back that up. Uh, we've selected Mitchell, you know, to provide a sort of role that he does so well with the white ball, and that's sort of a, a holding sort of role. I mean, he does turn the ball, and uh, you know, he's getting better and better as a red ball bowler. But um, it is a holding sort of sort of role that we've we've picked him for. Um, and then Todd Astle provides, the, I guess, the attacking option, um, the wrist spinner. Um, he's had limited opportunities over the last sort of 18 months due to a couple of injuries that he's that he's picked up. Um, we've always rated him. He's got a great um, a great record um, at domestic level. Um, experienced campaigner, combated eight if, if necessary. And um, you know, it was tough on Ajaz Patel and Will Somerville, um, but in this particular um, case, you know, we've given the uh, Todd Astle the nod. 
Uh, we'll start with the quicks, Peter. It seems like Ferguson is, is likely to play at some point, and they certainly like him. He'd probably be going in at the expense of Wagner, I assume. They'll play they'll play Southie and, and Bolt up front, and then uh, Ferguson is the third guy. That, do you think that's harsh on, on Wagner? Yeah, and I also think it's a risk. I mean, it was interesting to hear Larson mention resilience, and that's been a, a bugbear of New Zealand fast bowlers over the years with, with the likes of Milne and Co introduced and then unable to be selected for long periods of time. And my my fear is that if they go with Ferguson at the expense of Wagner is that um, uh, he ends up as a bit of a donkey as opposed to a, a, a thoroughbred and you end up getting too many overs out of him and you don't have someone to kind of do the donkey work or, or you do and they've said that that's going to be Mitchell Santner and he's going to bowl lots of overs for not many. Um, all it takes in test matches is for a bolt or a Saudi to get injured and all of a sudden Ferguson ends up uh, loading up with a lot more overs than you'd expect. So I kind of think that Ferguson and Wagner almost need to be a duo, that if you're going to pick Ferguson as your spearhead and nasty fast spells, you actually need a Wagner to pick up some of those extra overs and do the extra work. So does that make Southie vulnerable, I would assume? Yeah, I, th- I think so. If they if they insist on playing uh, Mitchell Satner or, or Astor as the spin option, um, you know, the other option is that they don't play one of those and that they just go with uh, the four seamers and I think that's potentially a, a viable option as well Yeah I'm not sure I could see them playing Ferguson in the two tests against England even I think the option will be Southie, Bolt swing conditions, Wagner the workhorse uh, and then maybe Ferguson gets a crack when they get to Australia to where conditions aren't maybe swinging around as much I'd, and, and generally they're pretty conservative the selectors too I mean that said, uh, we saw Patel and and uh, some of all disappear from the squad, um, which sort of, which surprised me, um, particularly Patel. But yeah, I, I'm guessing that would be. I, I don't know if Ferguson will get a run in that, those two tests against England. As you said, they'll wrap him up in cotton wool because they actually want him to be in Australia, and uh, they'll be kicking themselves if anything was to happen in these next two tests, and, and he's no longer an option in Aussie. I don't want to make a song and dance of it and start uh, launching a campaign to sort of crawl the career of Tim Southey, but I honestly think that he's the odd man out here. He's he's okay if it's swinging, and he's okay with the new ball, but he's not going to give you much with the old one or when it's softened up and when the wicket flattens out, and that's where Wagner bowls those donkey overs. He bowls the short stuff. He absolutely keeps them in the game and takes wickets at a time when the wicket's not doing much. And unless the conditions are favourable for Southie, he really doesn't seem to have the heart or the uh, or the method to be able to go to a plan B. And I think, yeah, Wagner does seem to be the unfashionable one, but I would be really disappointed on his behalf for him to miss out. So does that mean that it's an all-pace attack in that first test next week? Or does is Santner get in there as a bit of an all-rounder and Santner's to take tricky, up some overs? Because Santner's such a good cricketer, a good fielder, good batsman, good bowler, but only good. He's, the package is nice, but it's more of a white ball package. He doesn't justify his place as a, as a top yep. six batter. He's not a front line spinner. He can block and end up for you, but his first class and test record in terms of strike rate and getting people out is is pretty high. He's not, yeah, he's not winning you any test matches. And Astel, Astel, Astel's often overcome by nerves at test level. I think he's played four tests and he's always bowled yeah, a succession a cool. of hard yeah. track, just trackers and full bungers. And he just he's not had the confidence or the continuity. And then we. Peter alluded to it before, and we're having the T20 discussion. You, you take guys like Patel, who's a, 
a, a noted wicket taker at Plunkett Shield level and some of them, you take them on tours and then you never play them at home. I mean, what, what, how are those guys feeling about their cricket? Do you know what I mean? I just, I don't think there's any logic to the way they're picking the, the spin bowlers. I kind of get the feeling that, um, and I don't want to start any conspiracy theories, but I kind of get the feeling that Santner is almost Williamson's pick and Astor is, is Stead's pick. Yeah. And um, and they're in a situation. I know they mentioned that Santner um, you know, helps the batting, but in his 23 innings, he's only got two fifties. Each Sodi's got three fifties in his Test career. Um, so you know, each Sodi, if you looked at the numbers, is you know kind of giving you as much as Santner with the bat. And yet Santner is the justification for his selection is is batting and and uh, containing. So I think that's what I meant before about every time the selectors choose a reason to justify in public why they've chosen them, I often feel they dig themselves a hole because they don't always go as deep as the justification. It's almost like they don't expect to have to justify the positions and then they get themselves into a little bit of trouble. I would have much rather seen some of it with left-arm bowlers with like Bolt, Wagner, Curran and, and potentially Stark in Australia taking the ball away from the left-handed batters who are also quite crucial um, and again, it would have reinforced the point. I don't understand why they need two wicket keepers um, in a squad of fifteen, and why you know you'd include Blundell as well as Watling, unless Watling's got a, a niggle. Um, so there's a couple of curly ones there, and you know we'll just have to wait and see. It probably won't affect the eleven they put on the park, but it's a bit of a strange fifteen. I just, can I just come in here quickly because you've mentioned it, Peter? I'm always fascinated with this. Blundell was a schoolboy off spinner who was the fourth fourth keeper in the queue at Wellington College, and. Obviously, Watling's played the bulk of his first-class career as a batsman only. Where are we at with wicket keepers? Are they just? Were they happy to have stoppers? Do they just? If you're enthusiastic and you want to do it, can you be the wicket keeper? <laughs> you know, once upon a time, a, a, a wicket keeper conceding a buy in Test cricket was akin to a death in the family. And now it's just like, oh well, he, he'll go out and bat well, and that's all we judge him on. Yeah, and that's Adam Gilchrist's fault, isn't it? That's where it all started. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've kind of got the same approach with T20 cricket. I know there's lots of talk about, you know, how good a keeper do they really have to be, but I just feel that's the modern take on keeping. You know, my approach to wicket keeping was probably a lot more old school where I felt that I could actually affect the choices that the batter made by standing up to the stumps sometimes and then back for others, and then they start to second guess, well, is he? they won't bowl a bouncer if he's standing up, or they, they, he will bowl a bouncer if I'm standing back. And for me, I, I feel like the current generation of wicketkeepers are very passive, and they kind of watch the game happen in front of them, and they, they almost listen to the hype that their job is just to stand back and catch the ball. And, and it kind of means that you end up in these debates about who, is, who really is the best, because if Tom Blundell and Tim Seifert were putting themselves under pressure and standing up to bowlers every now and again, then you'd really start to get a feeling as to who this, you know, who the, the standout was. And with them all standing back, essentially just receiving the balls that come through, it does kind of make it a bit hard to judge. And the keeper too sets the tone, don't they, Peter? I mean, in the sense that however they're performing, I mean, there's all the talk and everything as well, but you're right about the impact the keeper can have on the game and the ebb and flow of it. Yeah, that was one of the reasons I didn't get picked early on is because I wasn't noisy enough and it was kind of a conscious decision that I had to come out of my shell and, and be a persona that I, I didn't naturally mm. fit with me. Um, and, you know, and that's something where, you know, from what I've heard on the grapevine, Glenn Phillips doesn't really want wicketkeep and yet he's kind of doing it because it gets him in the team and, and it means he's a sure bet. But I think if you asked him, you know, would you rather have a run around in the field and bowl some offspin now again? He'd probably choose that. And wicket keeping is just a tough gig, mm. and it doesn't get much accolades. And um, you know, Blundell, from all accounts, has done a great job for Wellington, um, but because we don't get to watch much domestic cricket, and it's really hard to judge. So it's peculiar that they feel they need two keepers in a squad of 15 for a home series where no one's ever more than a 45-minute flight away.
Peter, you mentioned tough gig, and it takes me to guys like Glenn Maxwell, Nick Maddinson, and Will Pukowski in Australia, who've all declined to play international cricket or be considered for selection on mental health grounds. Mm. Like, you're quite or have been involved, obviously, as a first class player, you've been involved in board level and stuff. What's being done to make sure that players are, are, are well and prepared, and, and what sort of, sort of help do they get to, to get them, you know, to make sure that they're right to play in that regard? That's a great question for the Players Association and those guys who actually deliver that stuff. For, for quite a while, or for probably six or seven years, there have been um, uh, counselling services available through the Players Association, and, and I know that the Players Association are doing a much better job at making sure that players understand that help is there. Um, some players, like Ish Sodi and some others, have come out and kind of spoken about the challenge. Ish Sodi's got a really good TED Talk, which he did for TEDx Monaco, if you look online, around kind of the the challenge of going to work every day and being judged by thousands of people who don't know who you are as a human being. And, you know, if, if, if the te- radio technician I can see through in the other room, if he had 1,000 people over his shoulder watching him push the buttons, that would affect his performance and that would affect the, the baggage that he takes home after work and, and his relationship relationships and the rest of his life and you know that for me I think professional sport is only really just starting to come to terms with it and the Australian setup have obviously they've created a culture now where the players feel comfortable stepping out of that environment and saying actually no and this is why whereas potentially I think we've had players in the New Zealand setup in the past who have maybe said no but they haven't been comfortable saying why so I think that's a place we need to get to um, it's much better for the longevity of the players and it kind of makes the sport more attractive to, to all involved. Because as we've seen from Lou Vincent and co, it's a, cru- it's a, it's a, um, it's a harsh game. It's a, it's a very cruel game. Um, any club cricketer who's gone on a Saturday and not had a bat and not had a bowl and dropped two catches and gone home to the girlfriend and said, well, how, you know, how was cricket today? <laughs> knows that you fail more often than you succeed in cricket. And, um, you know, it's an interesting to see the Australian shift and it'd be nice to think that in the future New Zealand players, both men and women, have that flexibility as well and, and it's starting to get there. So you're saying guys have withdrawn on the even match for with back spasm or, or something, perhaps there's, there's a little bit more going on than that? Potentially not the eve of the match, although I, you know, I, I can probably think straight off the top of my head of three players that you get the feeling that they haven't had complete faith in their ability or the things that they've been asked to do. And so you do wonder over the years about those little niggles or those late withdrawals or um, you know, after a good performance all of a sudden they're not available for the next one. And some of those players I know are, are a little bit fragile when it comes to that sort of stuff. And, you know, we're not in an environment yet, unfortunately, where those players can say, well, I actually need a break because as much, as wonderful as that high was, um, I'm now on the down after that. And, you know, due to mental health issues or whatever, uh, that's not something I'm coping with. And, you know, Lou Vincent obviously faced that, but there's lots of other players you know, Daryl Tuffy and others who may not have been formally diagnosed but, are, but have had challenges in their life off the park that have influenced their performances on the park. Does it take people such as ourselves who talk about the game to, to make it more acceptable for guys to, to, to venture an opinion on these things or will it take a player themselves to say, look, I'm, I'm out this week or I'm taking a definite break from the game and, and, and this is why? How, how does it work or how would it work, do you think? I do think um, you know journalists have a, a real opportunity to be the the conduit and the storyteller to make it a safe space because social media doesn't necessarily allow for that um, that freedom. Um, and the challenge for the players is if they 
rely on social media to tell their negative stories or, or their challenging stories, it's also the place where they receive all the feedback. But if the if the story can be told in a, in a trusting and a safe space by a, a, a journalist of note, um, then it puts some credibility and, and protection around that player because you know the person telling the story is a respected member of um, you know the the the, the critical uh, analysis of the game and, and, it, and it makes it a lot more human and, and it can't, starts to steer the conversation from the outset. How you the, the final paragraph of your of your essay or the final words of your interview set the tone of how the public react. Whereas in social media, it's often you know 140 characters or less, and then we all pile on. Peter, that's a, uh, an appropriate place to end the program for this week. Thank you very much, Peter McGlash, the uh, former Black Cap and uh, first class cricketer. Also, thank you to uh, sports editor Stephen Hewson and uh, Hamish Bidwell uh, for his part. Also, that's extra time for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. I'm Barry Guy. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.